I'm always being asked to, to defend my politics. What I would love is if people who are neutral would have to defend theirs. How can you be neutral and objective about the rape of children? How can you be neutral and objective about the criminalization, the prison industrial complex, and the torture, frankly, of our youth in youth prisons, right? Like, I can I can explain why I'm political. Can you explain why you're neutral? Like, I would just, just let, like, let, if everybody had to identify, you know, if everybody had to do it, it would, uh, that would be fine. But in, in, instead, those of us that have been trying to break down the doors, you know, we've got to, you know, we've got to say why we're doing that. I understand that. Welcome to The Systemic Way. In today's episode, Cesar and I are in conversation with Vicky Reynolds. For those of you who don't know that much about Vicky, I'm going to read a little bit from her bio so you can have a little bit of an idea and a taste of the person that we met. Vicky works from a decolonizing and justice doing framework. She works as a consultant, facilitator and supervisor in team development, resisting burnout and sustainability, trauma and witnessing resistance to violence and oppression and a supervision of solidarity. Her experience includes consulting, training, and clinical supervision with refugees and survivors of torture, including Indigenous survivors of state violence in Canada, mental health and substance abuse counsellors, rape crisis counsellors, frontline and housing workers, and transgender and queer communities. She has developed curriculum and talk group work, trauma, ethics, supervision and diversity courses at Vancouver Community College, Adler University and the University of British Columbia. She has received numerous awards across the globe and as a clinical supervisor and therapeutic supervisor, Vicky is informed by narrative and collaborative therapy and provides individual and group clinical supervision to therapists and community workers. So that's a bit of a flavor of Vicky. But Cesar, it'd be great to hear from you some of your thoughts from the conversation we were privileged to have with her. Wow, Julie. Yeah. Where do we start? I mean, from from the get-go, it was just energy and passion and action. That's what I took away from that conversation with Vicky. I, I felt I felt like I wanted to run out and change the world right right now in any way that I could mm. possibly can in the best way that I can. Um, and some of the things we, we talk about her key ideas in her work and her writing, but really enjoyed the discussion around kind of solidarity teams, the idea of censoring ethics, addressing power. You can see that really exudes in everything that she says and does. She she really walks the walk, doesn't she? She Oh, you took the words from me. That's oh. just what I was gonna say. It was like her authenticity of walking the walk, talking the talk. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it? She's She's quite inspiring from that point of view, I think, of making you look at yourself and, and think, oh, what are my my values and how am I going to choose to live and walk my values um, as I go through my, my work, my life? Um, how's it all going to show up, I suppose? 
and the intentionality around the collective ethics and the collective values and bringing that to the forefront. So also, how do I, alongside the people that I experience life with, how do we communicate this stuff about values and ethics and how do we negotiate this stuff together yeah. and work together towards Exactly. Progress? Yeah, and I think that's true. That's that. That's exactly it. It's not just her walking her walk or walking it as an individual. It's as thinking of it as a collective, as a community, and how we can really move actually towards being alongside each other as we spend time together and supporting change, like you said, addressing. Um, addressing power and the structures that are out there that you know make make people not have an equal experience of this world yeah and what what i left that conversation with was a real sense of this idea that things like something like justice doing or having that as a value and as an ethic um is one thing and it is good in itself however what action does that bring? What, what, where's the doing in something like justice doing, rather than just having an ethic and a value? And you know, I believe in social justice, but how do I then act on that? And how do I action this? How do I bring? How do I play a role in bringing this into the world? And and to add to that, actually, Cesar, I think it's an important thing, isn't it? it um, in a, how do you bring it into action in a way that sustains you? Um, rather than creates a sense of, of burnout or fatigue about it all, which I suppose is um, the really refreshing bit, isn't it, with Vicky? Because as you named right at the beginning of this conversation, her energy um, and her continuous energy that you can see that is, is fueled by, by what she does um, is, is, is something really that... Um, trying to think of the words it is it, it, it sort of makes you have a different view of of your practice I suppose it make it makes you think about these questions that we've named in our reflection and how can these things really sustain me because they can sustain anybody or sustain all of us to go forwards with change yeah so, it really brings to life the idea of bridging social activism with therapy mm. and she embodies that spirit doesn't she so yeah, real honour for us to, to speak with her and we hope you all get as much out of this conversation as we did and we would love to hear some of your thoughts and reflections as well about the podcast, so enjoy. Thank you and welcome Vicky Reynolds to The Systemic Way. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. Hello. I'm really honoured to be here. I'm thrilled that you've invited me. It'd be lovely to hear you um, just introduce yourself to our listeners and um, where you are, to maybe to kind of locate yourself within that a bit. Yeah, great. I'm Vicki Reynolds. I'm on the territories that are unceded, never surrendered, uh, um, ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people here in what is understood as Vancouver in uh, the nation state of Canada. Um, I'm a white settler here, uh, uninvited person. Um, my people come from Ireland and England. Um, and I, you know, we're three or four generations here, uh, not a long time on these territories. Um, 
I have a PhD in psychology. I've been a professor. Uh, that's not much of what really qualifies me for the work or how I orient myself, but it has mattered. Um, and so I think a lot of what I have taught my PhD students, the things I've been interrogating have been the ideas of, quote, trauma, ideas of addiction, um, and other ideas of mental illness. Um, I've really uh, see my work as bridging the worlds of social justice, direct action activism, and the stuff that gets called therapy, but now more the stuff that gets called community work. Um, and my, you know, I think my focus now is, is been trying to um, uphold the sustainability of workers who are working, you know, in these contexts of necropolitics and structural abandonment. Um, and uh, I think that I've learned this work on the back of activists in particular and social justice movements, but also I've been the clinical supervisor at the Center for Survivors of Torture and Political Violence. That was like 30 years ago when we first opened that up in Vancouver, and I've worked at refugee camps and centers for survivors of torture around the world, um, rape crisis centers, um, and sexual assault centers, um, where I've learned a lot. I've been the clinical supervisor at some uh, drug and alcohol programs, and Vancouver is kind of, the downtown east side of Vancouver is the poorest part of Canada that's not a First Nations reserve, and I've been the addiction supervisor there it's been the heart of the opiate catastrophe. We have seven people a day dying there uh, in this province every day in the opiate catastrophe. That's been going, we're in our eighth year of that. Um, so the workers um, that I'm most trying to hold up right now are actually experiential people, people who are called peers, people with living experience um, and shelter workers and people working, responding to homelessness. So I've kind of deprofessionalized myself in a way because where people are really getting their help is in these relational these relationships with folks who, for the most part, the qualification is is lived experience. So that's that's kind of where I'm from and kind of what I do. I've published a lot on resistance to trauma. Trauma is not a word I like, obviously. Um, medicalizing it and depoliticizing it. Um, yeah, those. That's kind of the heart of what I do. Yeah. Thank you. I, I was wondering. I, it was taking me back to yesterday. I was sitting at work at my desk and and I think I, I had some I was making some notes for today I was thinking about the conversation today and I turned to my colleague next to me and I said oh what what would you think of working with some people who are on death row or with specifically with rape vi victims in that setting and she was she was like what what oh that, that's really heavy work that must be really intense mm. being in those environments um and I was like hmm interesting and then when you were just listing now all the different settings and places you're working I was thinking what what drew what's drawn you what's led you down that kind of those paths I suppose thanks for that not everyone would go there yeah I think you know the question I'm always asking in clinical supervision is what is the best use of me mm -hmm. what is the best use of me I, there's sometimes because I'm um, resisting capitalism as much as I can in my life um, as a direct action activism, as someone who's anti-capitalist, anti-imperialism. Um, I It looks like I don't have a career, but I think that's ingenuine of me to say that. Um, but my my what my work does make sense if I follow that question, what is the best use of me? That's what I've always done. And and 
So before I was a therapist, I was working um, against the death penalty. I mean, we had the AIDS crisis and I was I was informed by ACT UP and Queer Nation. That activism really informed me. Uh, I think of the, some of the language that ACT UP used themselves was, you know, drag queens fighting police and state violence with tiaras in high heels, you know, uh, just like meeting hate with love and and bringing performance to activism and thinking about Emma Goldman saying, if I can't dance at your revolution, I don't want to come. That really informed me. Um, but I, I was living in the state of California. My partner and I got together in Botswana, Africa, and which was ravished by AIDS while we were there. AIDS just came at that time in the mid 80s. So AIDS became my issue because my students were dead. The family we lived with ended up dying of AIDS because, of course, in the in Africa, there was no health care, no, you know, um, yeah, the the kind of um, impoverishment and racism internationally that made the crisis worse, just like um, uh, just like COVID is worse there. Right. Uh, so when I when we landed in in California, my concern was AIDS. And that's how I ended up meeting with the queer community. And they were like, you're, you're straight and you're white. And I'm like, yeah, but my issue is AIDS and Africa, you know, and that solidarity, right. That it's not about my identity. It's about these connections of love, um, relational connections. And so, but at that time, California decided it was um, safe enough to kill people again. They, they started, they had a moratorium on the death penalty in the United States where the Supreme court said, we we've killed too many innocent people. We should take a look at this. Uh, And so they were just saying, oh, no, wait, we've fixed the, we've tinkered with the system and we can kill people again. We're we're good to go to kill people. So while I was living in California that year, I was like, um, what's the best use of me is vulnerability, Julie. Like, I think if we track ethics to be an ethical person, you know, as Howard Zinn would say, to try to live as a human being in this world, the way you think human beings ought to live. I try to track vulnerability, center what is most vulnerable and move my passion and any access to power to that struggle. So I became immersed in the death penalty work. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I became uh, involved in a bunch of different organizations, but I was also involved with Amnesty International in particular. And I worked for 20 guys on death row and every one of them was executed. Every one of them was killed by the state, right? And what those men taught me, of course, was that everybody is so much more than the worst thing they've ever done. Everybody is so much more than the worst thing they've ever done. So in terms of my influences, that's the heart of it. That is the core. I have had, that is the biggest qualification for me to work with men who've used violence, with people who've done harm, is that I can see, I want to hold people 100% accountable for what they do, but I see people as being so much more than the worst thing they've ever done. And I learned that from men on death row. Yeah. So like, I guess that's, you know, so why I follow different struggles has been, this is a good use of me. Not necessarily, this is the biggest thing going on in the world. Here I am in this context, in this moment, what can I actually shift? You know, I think Noam Chomsky has also been a great inspiration of me alongside Howard Zinn and other folks, but Chomsky talking about not having false humility because it doesn't play well for movements. What have you got? What should you be doing? What can you move in your circle right now? What can make a difference systemically, right? So that that's helped me be strategic about how I move and where I might be useful and stepping out of places where I'm not useful or also as a white middle-aged woman, not needed. You know, I've been, I was just asked recently to write another chapter about trauma for a really important 
um, publication. And I was like, you know what? I don't think we need to hear from any more white middle-aged women on this who are straight. <laughs> like you must be able to invite some other voices in by this time, right? So sometimes you're not the right person to go somewhere, even though you are invited. Just trying to, you got to get out of the way at times, right? Make space and kind of get out of the way. Wow. Um, that's going to really live with me that what is the best use of me as a guiding principle. Um, thank you for that. Um, I'm, I'm interested in some of the kind of origin stories as well. I know you, you began to talk about it, but, um, and what it was like when you began to connect ideas from activism and activism communities with therapy. And if there was a, um, if there was much of a culture around it at the time and, and if not, was there resistance from either, either or, you know, and how you kind of manage some of those challenges? Yeah, you know, I would actually go back to, I'm a, I'm a failed athlete. I am an athlete with no competitive spirit. So <laughs> I wanted to be a phys ed teacher, but I was like, shit. And I, I was a good enough athlete to be on most teams, but not, I couldn't compete in any, I wasn't good enough at anything. I was a pretty good swimmer, but I wanted to be a lifeguard, Right. Um, you know, I joined ski patrol. I was good enough to like figure out how to ski easy, but I was great at, you know, that first aid part. So I'm more like a lifeguard in this world. Um, but I was a canoe and I was a canoeer. Like I I'm from Canada. I'm from Ontario canoe country. And, uh, I spent my summers working up North, uh, on canoeing and stuff. So anyway, I, I went to university and got a degree in outdoor recreation because, uh, I was a smart kid and my principal in my school really wanted me to go be a lawyer. And I was like, I'm not going to be a lawyer, which is interesting because I ended up only working with fantastic lawyers, death row lawyers and refugee work lawyers. I have huge respect for lawyers. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I was like, I'm not doing this thing. They want me to I'm not I there's always room for a working class kid to join the elite if they, you know, do well at multiple choice tests and their brain is organized for school. That was me. So I was like, I'm not going to do that. I took a degree in outdoor rec and I was canoeing basically and snowshoeing in the winter and stuff. But I went to work with what we call hoods in the woods, hoods in the woods, <laughs> kids, youth who've been criminalized and incarcerated and uh, outdoor adventure programs for them. So I was at a place where we took kids for long canoe trips and it was really high activity, like real high risk and, and very athletic and stuff like that. And um, it was all young men from, from, you know, prison. And, and, and at that time and now, um, you know, I'm a real abolitionist and I was an abolitionist before I knew the language before it, before I knew these young ones, you know, these were children who had done horrific crimes, um, but they were bumped into adult court because of the nature of their crime. You have your rights as a child, unless you need them. You know, that's why we need to be anti-carceral and policing and certainly end prisoning of children. But anyway, I was in, I was on these canoe trips because I was a canoe tripper, but then I, who I was with were, were all these like kids who are incarcerated and figuring out all these kids are poor. Most of these kids are indigenous or kids of color. All these kids have grown up um, with all kinds of systemic violence against them. You know, so we abandon them as children. But as soon as they do something horrific, like a violent crime, all the resources in Canada come down on them. You know, it costs a fortune to put a kid in prison. Right. So I was thinking, where was 20 bucks to get this kid a pair of shoes when they needed it. No, but you know, we can pay 10,000 bucks for a whole bunch of court meetings to prove they should be bumped up to adult court. So that really revolutionized me and had me thinking. So my degree was in outdoor recreation and I thought I was going to maybe use recreation to do some kind of 
not therapy, but I, you know, I was, I was on that line when that stuff was first starting. I thought this kind of makes sense. Uh, but then of course I got more interested in being with these young people um, and dismantling the impact of incarceration and violence against them. You know, that became more important to me than canoe tripping. Um, and that's really like, that was really kind of the heart where I started to bridge that. Um, I was working as a unpaid, you know, against the death penalty and for refugees and doing a bunch of other frontline activism and stuff. Uh, as I, and I wasn't sure what I was going to, so I started to work in group homes, uh, because I knew that's where these youth had been. And I was like, those are the youth I want to be with. I don't, I wanted to be a teacher. I'd been a teacher in Botswana, Africa for four years. And it taught me, I, I didn't really want to be a teacher, meaning, uh, with all the, um, professional teachers I talked to and principals and stuff, they're like, oh, you'd be great. We'd hire you, but you probably would cause a lot of shit in the education system and you would <laughs> never win. And you'd, you'd spend your whole career fighting because all the youth I'm most interested in get kicked out of schools. And when mm -hmm. I was in group homes, that's what was happening. If you want to abandon a child, you know, call them a gang kid and don't let them go to school. Right. Once a kid doesn't have education, right. Um, as black um, academics have shown us, there's that pipeline. If we can refuse you school, we can straight line you for the prison industrial complex, which is ever growing. And so that was in the 80s when the prison industrial complex was starting. We were starting to criminalize more youth and direct build more youth prisons instead of um, high schools, <laughs> you know, and really make a plan for what we've got now. Right. Which is the incarceration and caging of children in like Australia, Canada, you know, the United States. So. Uh, okay. That really, that really got me involved. And then I, when I started to work in these group homes with youth, I thought I've got to do more than my shift. I've got to change some stuff structurally to do that. I felt I needed a master's degree. So I went and did a family therapy degree. Um, and then I started work. it made sense to work with survivors of torture and political violence because I'd always worked with refugees and I was an activist. And in fact, some of the refugees, you know, they were my references for that job. There were people who had PhDs and more experience as therapists when I got that job, but I was the one known to communities as being an activist and on the ground. So that's, you know, the origin really, it it's about these relationships, isn't it? And being educated by the people you're trying to be useful to and trying to leverage what you know and how you might be useful in this situation. What? I don't know if you can answer this now, because in some ways it's a looking back process, but as best you can, I'm wondering, can you hold on to what drew you to do that master's in family therapy? Well, um, it was, I, I went to school, I think in the nineties and early nineties, I went to do my master's and it was just at the time, you know, I have real problems with academia, which is interesting given that I got a PhD and became an adjunct professor and stuff, but all of these amazing human beings who had mentored me in the work, they didn't have academic qualifications for the work. Within five and 10 years, they disappeared from the work, you know, and the people who are clinical supervisors were people just out of university with degrees and no lived or living experience, right? We totally bought on to that capitalist academic project, the white supremacy and capitalism and patriarchy that's involved in academia. Um, so I, I did a master's not to qualify, but I could see I got really great advice from mentors Um who didn't have those, they said, you've got an undergraduate, you should go do a master's in counseling, because that's how you're going to be able to stay relevant in this field. And that's exactly what happened. So it's not that I didn't learn anything. But uh, mostly what I learned is the belly of the beast to understand the way people are talked about in terms of being abnormal, 
and mentally ill. What's mentally ill is a society that's abandoning its children to prisons. I mean, it's easy for me to see what's mentally well and what's mentally ill because I understand that, uh, you know, that education helped me. I mean, I learned some things that were useful, but for the most part, I I disagreed with the way they saw um, people as mentally ill when I saw it as str- suffering and absolutely issues of social justice. So yes, Julie, when I started, my voice was absolutely not welcome in the academy. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember my first class, the professor said something really homophobic and I'm straight but I was very queer passing there, purple hair and punky clothes. And but my community was queer and non-binary. And um, and I felt like I'd abandoned everybody. And, and I just put my hand up and said, you know, sir, a doctor, fabulous, professor, fabulous. Like, that's offensive. Uh, you know, that like, uh, you know, homophobia, you know, what you're performing, um, you know, being queer, being uh, not heteronormative came out of the DSM you know, 10 years ago at that point, like this is already 10 years old. And, and he said, well, I might be out of date. I said, you're not out of date. You're offensive and total silence in the class. And you know how it goes, right? Says like right after the class, everybody came up and said, I'm so glad you said something. I have a friend who's a lesbian. And I was like, well, I didn't appreciate your silence. Mm -hmm. You know, how does your friend feel about you being silent? You know? And they're like, Oh, you're not very nice. It's like, no, I'm not. It's the politics of niceness has got you thanking me now and abandoning me in the class. More importantly, abandoning people you say you love who are queer, right? So there were all those huge struggles. The, the, the short story on that is, Julie, when I graduated, I was asked to come and speak to the board of directors about what I would change about the university, which was kind of amazing to me. I mean, I was doing public talks and I was already, you know, having some influence, I think. In And I said, like, we got to center social justice. We have to get rid of you know, a patriarchal faculty that's entirely, you know, not just like they're misogynist. Like for one thing, it's like, you know, feminism, which has been so important, like feminism's not my number one thing here, guys. We, You should have had that one licked. I mean, let's, you know, what, you know, we need to have faculty that represent people in terms of being people of color, uh, responding to anti-Black racism, in particular, Indigenous people, queer people, ableism. So, and then uh, within a couple of years, I was a professor there. You know, so I started to teach there and the course, they structured a course for me, which was about talking about um, basically talking about how social injustice and structures of oppression are the cause of what is understood as mental illness. That was kind of the long name of the course. I was like, that I will teach. So that's, you know, and I think that I have been one of the people who's made some space in the academy and certainly with my writings to try to blow up some space. But there's been a lot of massive influences before me and whose shoulders I'm standing on. That's a real example of a concrete systemic change from embodying your own, your ethic and your and your values. And we, we we're going to talk a bit more about your your kind of the, the themes of your work. Well, I'm I'm interested as well in um, in your connection to family therapy and the ideas of family therapy. And I've seen in in one of your papers or one of your um, bios where you describe yourself as a, influenced by narrative and collaborative approaches to psychotherapy. Um, and I, I wonder if there's anything you want to say about that and your connections to these approaches. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say gratitude, man. Gratitude uh, to the family center um, in Wellington, New Zealand, Aotearoa, um, the great white cloud, as Maori people call it. That when I was working as a youth counselor, I, like, yeah, um, my 
my manager, Midge Nolan, who's had a massive influence on me, she was from Ireland and really understood a lot of intersections of poverty, socialism, this kind of stuff. She said, go, go to this workshop. So I went to see the family center, um, which is, they call themselves the just therapy people from Wellington, Aotearoa, New Zealand. And what they believe is that it's just, um, it's just therapy. It, therapy is not the biggest thing. You know, we're just your therapist, right? But also that there has to be justice in therapy. And when I heard them say that, it just like broke open everything that I'd been fighting for in my master's and in other spaces, right? And I'd gone to a lot of professional trainings and never heard anybody say anything that let me believe I had room there as an activist. In fact, I had gotten my first clinical supervision as a therapist. They wanted to talk, you know, how when you go for your evaluation, they're talking about three things that are your weaknesses, three things are your strengths. <laughs> my weaknesses were listed as being a feminist, a socialist, and an activist. I'm not making that shit up. That was officially on my evaluation. That was written down. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. The first thing was to talk about how I was a feminist, though, which is interesting because I've never identified myself as a feminist. I've always been influenced by Crenshaw's ideas of intersectionality, like which feminism, which women I've come from working class people. So class issues. So that's really interesting. But the family center, um, in particular, Flora Tahaka, who was the Maori head, Kiwi Tamasisi, who led the Samoan Pacific Islander, and Charles Waldegrave, who was Pacquiao or white settler, the ways they were working together and talking about these things. I ended up when I was the clinical supervisor at the Center for Survivors of Torture and Political Violence, I, you know, I was working with people from 45 countries and about 10 things that weren't identified as countries, you know, te uh, territories under dispute because of like military struggles and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like convinced that I was being a white supremacist. I couldn't not be calling, you know, participating in inviting people to territories that have been colonized you know, all of those things and having good intentions isn't enough. And nobody could supervise me around this. Everybody I was asking questions about, they're saying, that's a really good question. I'm like, no, you're, you got to, who can tell me this? So I actually went to Aotearoa for six months and studied there with them. And did, I did a lot of therapy with Flora Tahaka. She took me to prisons and one of the prisons around Wellington, we would do family sessions in there together. And they would, there would be 40 women in that women's prison, all from one family, Julie. And it would take hours to get everybody through security and strip searches and all that they have to endure to be able to come to a family session. Um, and we would do these massive sessions with 40 women in the room, but it's family work. And mm -hmm. Flora Tahaka would lead that. And it was like so immersed in justice, in particular because of the location. And because, you know, you had to put up with so much abuse to participate in therapy. You know, if it's a strip search, which I believe is sexual assault, to be able to see a visitor or see your child, you know, these kind of things. Mm -hmm. So um, but they really believed in and still do believe uh, that what they're looking for are stories that center belongingness, sacredness and liberation. And so and then there was the liberation theologian. So I was also being informed at the same time by survivors of torture from Latin America, from Guatemala from El Salvador, from Chile. In particular, the Chilean community has had a massive influence on my education. Um, so people who had survived the American back coup in 1973 and escaped, many of them came directly to Vancouver, right? Because they got past the United States. The first thing was Vancouver. Our activism has been so informed by the Chileans because the people who came had acute um, 
political analysis. And we're so brilliant on that. So, so many of my clients taught me these things, especially in social movement work. Um, and so, yeah, th that's um, that got me interested in the work of Martin Barrow, Ignacio Martin Barrow, who was a, he was actually a priest. He was a Spanish priest who went to El Salvador. He was assassinated by the Americans, uh, by military personnel trained at the School of the Americas, the School for Torture in the United States. And um, they killed him because he was a psychologist. And he had written a book called um, Writings Towards a Liberatory Psychology. And he said, in order to have uh, liberatory psychology, we first have to liberate psychology. And he started to write about the injustice, the social injustice inherent in that neutralizing psychology writing that is so white supremacist, elitist, uh, patriarchal and capitalist, you know? So these were kind of the real roots on the ground happening at the same time, really. Uh, and I, I did also go to um, Australia on that trip and I did intensives with Michael White more importantly, Janella Bird, who's a clinical supervisor in Auckland in Aotearoa, New Zealand, who was bringing feminism and relational ways of being into the work. Um, and also uh, really important work of Alan. Isn't it funny when you know people, you only know their first names? Mm -hmm. Australia, the guy who wrote um, Being Ethical, Alan Jenkins. <laughs> it's because <laughs> I work with Alan way too. But Alan Jenkins, I spent a lot of time really inside his work these invitations to responsibility because he was working with men and because of my death row work and my um, abolitionism and seeing people who are incarcerated as being constructed as horrible humans, uh, wanting to take that apart for all genders. Um, I really, that really had an influence on me, the invitation to responsibility um, that everybody was so uh, capable of that. And that really informed that, that massively informed a lot of what I did as well. Yeah. And I and I was in Vancouver, so which at that time there was a lot of narrative therapy going on. Colin Sanders was uh, my clinical supervisor at my job. He hired me as a student out of one of his workshops, and you know there were there you know there was a lot going on at that time, and those people informed me. But more importantly, was what was going on in activism. And I would say the Family Center was the heart of from that whole movement. The Family Center has been the heart of it. Um, Alan Wade's work and Kathy Richardson. Um, in response-based practice was happening at the same time as me. And Alan and I have a real affinity uh, where I'm talking about acts of resistance. Alan talks about how people are always responding. As my, I come to the work as an activist. Um, and so I'm talking about acts of resistance. Uh, and Alan comes with a real strong background in um, linguistics and looking at the ways language is inherently violent and hides resistance. So that's also been the response-based practice has been a home for me. And, um, but none of them are home. You know, I'm in my, I think as an activist, you know, I'm, I'm peripheral and welcomed. Yeah. Thanks, Vicky. I, I, I'm going back to, um, in some ways we've been, uh, we've been talking about the, the, the peep people and relationships that have influenced you. And I think one of the things that I've got when I've been, reading looking into your your, the th your writings and the talks that I've seen is is also to do with geography and when you were talking about you do, doing the canoe trips I'm like <laughs> nature and the, the the influence of that on you actually and the interconnection of that in in your work so I yeah, don't know if you wanted to say something about it 
Well, I, I mean, I, if you could see, I have sleeve tattoos of water tattooed all over me, right? right? And that's where my sustainability is, you know, that, mm. that kind of thing. Um, it's interesting too, though, because um, I came to environmentalism really late, Julie, because mm-hmm. um, it wasn't until I was seeing survivors of torture from Nigeria who were part of the Agoni um, people who were fighting pipelines through their territories from Shell Oil. Uh, Ken Sarawiwa was leading that. And of course, he was executed. Um, Shell Oil has since said they acknowledge they were a part of uh, participating in his murder by the state, his execution and paid off people and stuff. Um, but I was really hesitant about environmentalism because it was so not intersectional. Uh, when I was growing up, like in the 70s, people were t- like Greenpeace was interested in saving seals, but it wasn't interested in saving wolves because everybody wanted to get rid of snakes and wolves, but seals you could get money for. And and I and I know Greenpeace has more integrity than that. There was a lot of things they were doing, but I was listening to my fellow teenagers and they were like, look at seals, they're so cute. And I'm like, well, you know, some of my people are from Newfoundland and they hunt seals and they eat them. So I, and we eat, you're eating meat. So I don't get it, you know, <laughs> like not seeing the connection, but then seeing how environmentalism really is social justice work that of course what's cool for me is i'm 62 this month or next i'm soon i'm 61 now i'm always jumping ahead but um uh activists today um get the intersections of environmentalism social justice they see them as one thing right our generation fought that we had to learn to see things that this is all connected. And I learned that on the back of Nigerian clients who are survivors of torture for the most part. So I, yeah, I think for me, um, yeah, I, I mean, my, definitely my sustainability is out in the world and in particular in the water. Um, yeah. But, and, uh, and working hard to see the interconnectedness of all these relationships. So, and in particular, of course, the teachers for that, for me have been indigenous people and people of the land who have been very generous in teaching me things. Like most of all of the analysis I put together, of course, has not come from school or academics. It's from working alongside people who have suffered because of their political work and activism. That's where so much of my education comes from and movements, right? Um, Vicky, um, I'm interested in you kind of looking back on your work and the 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 body of your work and the, your experience of working with with groups where social justice has been a major theme of your work and i wonder what reflections you've got on the kind of the therapeutic properties of taking that stance when working with with people and holding a social justice theme or or passion in the work and what impact does it have on on the person that that yeah. you Meetings. Yeah, for me, it's for me, it's not a jump, right? Like it, it it's really interesting because, like you're saying, like certainly my whole career, I've either been, you know, they try to supervise me out of social justice work. That's how it started, you know, <laughs> or else been attacked for it. You know, I've I've often, and I and I would say it's not a critique, it's been an attack. I've I've had attacks in the academy um where people are basically saying you're too political. Um you know, and I'm like, I, I, I didn't bring the politics to the work. The politics are here. We are embedded in politics. What's cool is you say that now and people get it. But 25 years ago, people didn't. You know, it's like I was bringing the, oh, Reynolds, she brings the politics. It's like, well, I'm in a white abled body that is uh, 
I'm recognized as a citizen of Canada and I'm straight. So the politics are already embodied, like all of my privileges, but also my sites of disadvantage. Like I didn't bring the politics. They're here. Right. Um, and then thinking about, yeah, these, these things that hide as critiques, but are actually attacks. Like the first says, if you saw the first article I tried to publish, I was asked to write an article on social justice by a, a a man, a white man who I had huge respect for. We didn't know each other well, and he was teaching ethics, and he was also the head of a, a publication that was important in my province. And he asked me, he said, everybody in my ethics class is talking about your classes. And I was teaching trauma, addiction, other things. And he was like, it's always about ethics with you. He goes, this is really intriguing to me. He said, could you write an article for us? So I wrote an article um, which basically, you know, probably wasn't much different than what I wrote the next 20 years, just saying social justice and a commitment um, to social justice and ethical work has got to be at the heart of any work, whether you're working with addiction, trauma or what. It's not something I pull out for survivors of torture. It's something that belongs in every conversation. Right. Uh, I talk, you know, so um, the so I sent this in. It was an article that was asked for. The He wasn't one of the um, advisors who looked at the article. When it came back, there was more critique than words I had written. I'm not kidding. And it started because I said something about identifying as an activist. And it, and it said on the side, activists are people with cold black hearts who need to do mindfulness, who just haven't worked on their own anger, and they need to learn how to sit and be with their inner selves and shit. And I was like, Holy hell. Wow. I mean, you asked for this article. And then at the end of it, it said, I don't have time to spend three months with you to fix this. I mean, I think this can't be saved, but you know, you were recommended by our chief editor. So, you know, I won't like flat out erase this, but blah, blah, blah. You know, I published that. And so then I sent it somewhere else. They published it without an edit. Mm -hmm. You know, so these kind of attacks, I'm always being asked to, to defend my politics. And what I would love is if people who are neutral, would have to defend theirs. How can you be neutral and objective about the rape of children? How can you be neutral and objective about the criminalization, um, the prison industrial complex and the torture, frankly, of our youth in youth prisons, right? Like I can, I can explain why I'm political. Can you explain why you're neutral? Like I would just, just let, like, let, if everybody had to identify, you know, if everybody had to do it, it would, uh, that would be fine. But in, in, instead, those of us that have been trying to break down the doors, you know, we've got to, def, you know, we've got to say why we're doing that. I understand that. Well, I, I don't know if I answered your question. I think I I, I thought you did. But I didn't know okay. if you're going to add something because I've yeah, got another you know, question, but I can I mean, wait. It, it, I heard the kind of the impact on on yourself and um, yeah. but in the interaction with the person, you know, with the yeah. family that you meet. Yeah. And, yeah, no, I think coming from a social justice orientation and this, I, you know, it was interesting. I was in a little think tank once and someone kind of set me up, you know, Harleen Anderson from the um, collaborative therapies approach, right? She's from Texas. She's a older, refined woman. She was wearing pearls. She's very kind and polite, you know, and someone said, wow, you know, um, I would imagine because we were sitting in the same circle, they'd say, I imagine Harleen. And Vicky, you know, if they were working with the same person, would work totally differently and they might really disagree about what they're doing. And Harleen Anderson jumped in. She knew me and she knew my work, which I was humbled by. And she was part of uh, the training for my PhD. Um, and uh, she said, I would imagine that Vicky and I would work very differently. But I don't think for a moment 
that Vicky is going to run an unlearning racism workshop or a socialist workshop on the backs of a client. That's for her to have as an analysis to bring to the person. And I just thought, wow, she gets me. I'm not being overtly political with my clients, but it matters when you start by acknowledging, like just to go back to Alan Jenkins' ideas about invitations to responsibility, you know, what I would say is people can only be responsible for that which they actually have choice in. You know, Dean Spade, um, transgender theorist and activist who talks about life choices, where you actually have a life choice, you're responsible for that. But you're not responsible for being in welfare in a country that's designed itself around exclusion and capitalism, right? So naming those things without being too academic about it, you say, here's the field that we're in, here's the context of your life. But when you get a welfare check, buying booze instead of vegetables, how's that go? You know, I ask people to be, I create these relationships of respect and dignity based in a real social context of the work and naming that. And people, you know, honest to God says people just get to exhale on a level that says, right, I'm responsible for my actual life choices, but I'm not responsible for the whole context. It shifts everything. And I, I will say one other thing. Um, when I, I, I've written an article with a lovely man I talked to yesterday, I talked to him yesterday. There's, you know, a lot's going on in Iran, right. And they're, um, executing, uh, young men and and women. Um, I'm just thinking of a couple of young men, like lots of people, uh, Baha'is, but also people who are, um, struggling against the government right now in this foment, this, this revolution that they've got going on about about women's rights, frankly, and and liberation. So anyway, we're going to meet down and be activists together again and meet down at the protests, which is that's what the call was about yesterday. Well, 30 years ago, I was his super, I was his therapist and he had been brutally tortured for seven years. And we ended up uh, writing an article together uh, called Poetic Resistance, Bauman's Resistance to Political Violence and Torture. When I met Bauman, he had been tortured for seven years, escaped, came to Canada, had seen lawyers, had seen all kinds of people, had seen the Red Cross, had to tell his trauma story. You know, to get your um, refugee status, you have to tell all of the details of how you've been dehumanized and humiliated and tortured, right? Um, And so when he met, so his lawyer sent him to me and said, this guy's really in trouble. He was just like, Something horrific just happened. I, I'm just going to send him to you. We need he needs to see a therapist. So he came in and um, was really distressed, you know, and suffering. And uh, we went to sit together in a room, and he was getting. You could see he was girding. You know, he was getting himself ready to tell me all these humiliating, horrific things that happened. And instead, I just said, uh, Bauman. It's amazing that you are alive. Most people who are tortured die and you are alive. Can you teach me how it is that, how did you resist? How are you alive? And seriously, just the asking of that, I just remember his like this big exhale and he sat up in the chair and I'm not kidding. I am sure there were parts of his lungs that got oxygen that hadn't been in there in seven years. And this is what he said to me, prepare to be amazed. So instead of a degradating conversation about all the ways he was dehumanized and harmed and small, 
we were going to have a conversation about how he actually resisted, how he stayed human. The way I think about it is staying human in situations outside of human understanding. And those are the dialogues we started to have. It has got, I think, says it's got a, a embodied, people have an embodied response that allows them seriously to breathe in to every part of their being, you know, like on a cellular level to exhale and feel held. And it's, you know, and get outside of that judgment, Frank. I mean, everybody talks about being non-judgmental, but I mean, we're all asked to discern all the time. So that's, I think that's what it, how it, just that simple question. It's not a, it's not a big Foucaultian, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's not a big uh, analysis, smart girl question, it, but it's a relational question that names the context and looks for the site of resistance. And I'm always looking for the site of resistance. And what's cool about it is there's always a site of resistance if you're talking to a person because they're still here. So there's always a place to go. So I, I get energized just thinking about that. I want to honor Bauman. That's, of course, not his name, but he he, he taught me that. He, he He taught me. We co-created that together. Thank you for sharing that, Ricky, and talking about an embodied experience. I've felt shivers down my... In in a good way, with a little hairs on the back of your neck kind of response to that, because I really connected to it in terms of my own um, previous work, not current context of working with um, young unaccompanied asylum seeking children and who had when they come to the country, they have to retell their story many times in, in justifying and essentially within an eight, we do age assessments, you know, to kind of say, OK, yeah. this is a kid, so we're going to work with him in the children's services. And having to tell those, yeah, really traumatic, humiliating and painful stories over and over within a framework of we don't trust you. So you have to now, you have to convince us that your story is true. And I was always very aware of that. And um, always in my physical demeanor towards them and my, my tone, I tried to be kind and empathetic. The idea of just twisting it like that and in a, such a simple way and saying, wow, how did you how did you survive that crazy journey here? And it, it just um yeah, I I almost I wish I could go back and and <laughs> redo it, it some leads, of those meetings. <laughs> and and yeah, it says it leads you to the next conversations. What's that say about you? What kind of human being are you? What qualities did you have? How were you that creative? Wow, if I was that scared and in that much pain, I don't think I could think of that. That's amazing. Have people always known you have that kind of intelligence? Like, think about that conversation versus, I mean, I'll just say it because these are the kind of, you know, how these people are interrogated. Were you anally or orally raped? You know, imagine if I'd started our relationship by asking him that question. We measure sometimes how good the therapeutic session is. How good is it six hours later? If we had had another degrading conversation, would that person who's a survivor of torture go out that night and get wrecked or kill themselves. And thinking about neuroplasticity, how we are creating a pathway that's bigger and bigger. That's the trauma story. It's not re-traumatizing. It's just trauma. That's And that's what the police do. You know, when they interview you after rape, I just think like it makes such a difference to have this orientation to speaking from a social justice Context, like put it in its context and think about how people are always resisting oppression. I'm always thinking about that. It's a, it's, this is applicable in every situation for me. I, 
Too. Because I'm just not neutral because I, things are always situated in the political world where we have necropolitics and structural abandonment, right? There's, mm-hmm. yeah. Until we deliver a just society, I'm not going to do any of that neutral therapy. <laughs> I suppose to, to add to that, I suppose, and, and to be a little along alongside it and to think of other people within that system, I was thinking of when you said that you'd written the article and there's all these notes all over it, which makes me think of, you know, you can think of a, a work setting where somebody has a certain voice and something they want to say and the, and you feel that constant attack. For you, you went somewhere else, you you, you get it published. There's something that, that kept you going. And I'm wondering if you could say something to speak to other people who might be there, what they, what helps you keep going and not be attacked. And I did not just send it to someone else. I reached out. I I was dev- first. I was devastated, mm-hmm. and uh, you know the other thing is, I tell uh, younger students or younger practitioners, don't wait to be invited to publish. Your voice is needed now. Don't wait to get invited. The good old boys club's never going to want you. Break break down those walls. But here's what happened. I wrote Alan Wade. I phoned Alan Wade. Mm-hmm. I wrote I wrote him and I said like, here's what happened. Um, and I you know because he had said, Vicky, you need to start to publish. Your work really matters. And also it's different than his. Like I said, I'm coming from this social justice angle. He's like, this is important. Get this out there. He was really one of the people, Kathy Richardson and Alan Wade are why I did a PhD. I, I thought it was class privilege and I was worried about that and getting famous on the backs of clients. You know, the fact that I work with survivors of torture, like there's, you know, that whole hierarchy of pain and which are the real victims. And it was like, ooh, you know. So I was like, I didn't want to do that. But they convinced me that my voice needed to be there because I had something different to say. So after I sent that article in and it got attacked, here's what Alan sent me. Hey, Vicky, as your work becomes more and more public and in the forms that are protected by editors who are always ideological, you can expect more attacks, no question, because you are taking on the big kahunas. The tactic here is to waste no energy. Make it irrelevant if you can. Keep focused on spelling out and publishing your work. Um, One of the primary reasons editors tried to stop the publishing of A Day in the Life of Ivan Donisovich was that they recognized the intense quality and radical implications of the work. It was troubling, but could not be ignored. Not to blow smoke up your ass, but I think you may encounter the same kind of thing from time to time. If you want to avoid editorial privilege and prejudice, you'll have to write something about how oppressed people need to practice mindfulness and work on their communication skills. I'm guessing that's unlikely. You might treat these comments as a kind of test case, one that you will encounter again, Alan. And I I have this written up in my day timer. And you know what, Julie, when I do supervision, I find I read it to somebody every three months. Mm-hmm. You know, which is not, you don't have to take that for, I don't believe in a debate style of engagement. I believe in dialogical relationship, right? So in a debate, you're trying to annihilate the argument of your enemy. I have no interest in that. I think I would be an excellent debater. I think I would have been a good lawyer. That's what school wanted me to be. I've had to resist those patriarchal ways of communicating because I'm good at them. I, I grew up in them. Um, but I want to be dialogical where it actually matters how people are in relationship to each other. And it can be emergent, Right. So I thought it was great that Alan wasn't saying, oh, yeah, that person was mean to you. He didn't. Mm-hmm. He said, get get used to it. You know, what you're saying is different. Um, there's no room. There's no space yet. You've got to make space for this voice. You're going to get attacked like this again. This is a test case. How are you going to? I love that. Make it irrelevant. 
The tactic here is to waste no energy. Make it irrelevant if you can and keep focused on spelling out and publishing your work. I mean, if there's a real critique, investigate that, jump into that. But if it's an attack and not a critique, the goal is not to personalize it. Get over your ego. Do these ideas matter in this field or don't they? Right. And so that has really helped me every time. So, you know, it's been it it's it's been super useful. That's my response, Julie. That's a great question. It's the question I had. My answer really comes from Alan Wade. And that's solidarity. I read that a lot. <laughs> that's very powerful. I wonder if we can move on to some of the themes of your work. And I I mean, it feels strange to say move on to because you're 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 really talking to him already. Um, but Julie and I did do a, a bit of a exercise in preparation where we tried to pull out some key words and words that you use in your in your writing and words that you've I guess you used to um, to help explain some of your work and the spirit and the ethics of your work. Um, it, should we read them out, Julie? Yeah, should, yeah? Um, yeah. Yeah. You read a few. I'll read a few. We'll okay. see. Vicky, you might add to the to to the few we've got. I'm sure we're not going to cover them all. Sure. Sure. All right. Justice doing. Solidarity teams. Hope. Resisting despair. Resisting oppression collective ethics collective care rhizomes expansive inquiry connections of love and sustainability so yeah that's not an all-encompassing list but um we wanted to create a space really that's gorgeous you know do you know arlene katz arlene katz (laughs) writes about she's brilliant and she writes about social poetics and what you've just done is a social poetic. Really, you've just written me a beautiful poem. I feel really moved and witnessed and held by you. You know, that's a really beautiful thing to do to some for someone, right? I really appreciate that. I think these things are kind of, for me, they're all the same thing. You know, they all exist rhizomatically. Like they are all interwoven. And what I love about the rhizome from the work of Deleuze and Guattari, just as a concept that the rhizome is horizontal, that there's no hierarchical thing and there's no order to it. It's nice and messy. I think messy practice is the way I talk about my research or my approach, you know, um, a solidarity approach, the rhizome messy practice that. um, So like, I think these things like coexist and nurture each other. And, you know, with rhizome, sometimes this is, you know, sometimes collective care is more important sometimes acts of resistance are more important, you know, like what you pay attention to You're, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm networked in this rhizome of thought. So it's, I really appreciate that. That's a really beautiful thing. And I think of all of it as kind of justice doing is kind of for me, the, the overarching word I think about sometimes in um, social work, people talk about anti-oppressive practice. I think that's pretty formulaic. And also it's very low bar. Like the point is to not oppress. Like, when did we abandon doing justice with people? I'm not here to not oppress people. I'm here to actually do justice with people. By that, I mean, actually, I have a, um, my duty as a witness is to use my access to power collectively, not just my personal power, but collectively to change the social context that promote the suffering. That's justice doing is so much more than not, you know, people and I don't mean to take the piss out of any other language, but I'm just saying, you know, I don't want to make it a straw dog. I know there's like fabulous thinking and stuff behind it. But when people, you know, say, oh, yeah, we're on to your work. We also do anti-oppressive practice. I'm like, that. that's 
that's just the piece of it that helps you from doing harm to people. But what are you doing? You know, so that that's kind of how I start with that. And I think solidarity, um, like solid, you know, so much of my work is about solidarity. I have, I grew, I run my supervision groups. I call them solidarity groups uh, because we're not really doing supervision. We're doing something else. We're trying to keep each other alive in the ethics of the work. Um, solidarity teams are something I invite people to build so that they've, they're held up by a group and not just by their own quote, self-care or something like that. Mm. Yeah. Um, and when I think about hope, I mean, I think about believed in hope. Like hope is a very white middle class thing you could talk about. I mean, Obama wrote a book on hope, but um, a lot of people talk about hope. But I, I like Miriam Kaba talks about how hope is a discipline, you know, black abolitionist. Um, but I've talked about believed in hope that like, for example, when I'm working with a person, like when I was working with Bauman, well, first of all, I've got believed in hope because he's alive and he's in front of me. But I know when I'm asking people about their sites of resistance, what they've resisted, that's going to be hopeful. Like that is that is believed in. Like I can believe in. So I know, you know, so say I'm seeing a survivor of torture who's now struggling with substances or addiction or suicide, right? The stuff that gets called suicide, which I don't like that word. I talk about how hate kills um, and that the answer is belonging, that suicide is a way to blame people for their own suffering and death. But anyway, somebody's struggling with that stuff. I'll ask them, you know, let's go back and think about these acts of resistance, how you survived, you know, how did you do that? And there's just so much hope in that conversation. Like, how can we bring everything you knew then to this struggle? You know, like that's believed in hope as opposed to optimism or something else. I'm not hopeful about the world. I'm not an optimist. I think I'm very, I think I'm very strategic, but I think there's things you can have actually believed in hope about. So that that's what I think about that. And resistance. I just think I'm always looking for sites of resistance and acts of resistance that wherever there's oppression, there's always acts or sites of resistance. That's just, that's a massive assumption that I make and it's never proved me wrong that people are always resisting. No one ever participates in their own oppression. I don't believe that. And um, so that that's how I kind of track that. Mm. Fantastic to hear you. Um, summarize those ideas um because they're such massive topics and just even yeah. when we, we even when we put the word hope julie and i had a discussion around how how do we put that word because you do so much deconstructing of hope and and it was good to hear hear more yeah. of you there um really interested in the, the power of the solidarity teams that you talk about and yeah. um I'm actually doing the supervision course here and your oh. paper came up this week. I was like, oh, fantastic. <laughs> Everything's aligned, awesome. you know, but there, it's a, it's a core, one of the core readings actually. And so we, we've done a lot of thinking around solidarity teams. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. Maybe just to hear your thoughts on the power of working in that way in a supervision yeah, well, group. Yeah. It's all about, it's about activism, isn't it? It's about like resisting individualism. I, you know, Noam Chomsky, taught me this and many of us like it doesn't matter what you personally do about much but it very much matters who you coordinate with and how you start to shift things socially right like these ideas of collective ethics and collective care you know when i started to talk about collective care people weren't talking about that right there was all it was just self care and it was like well self care is so limited i mean collective care is what matters and also my own personal ethics i need to work sites in places with people who share, who where we have a collective ethic. We don't have to agree on everything. Solidarity is never about unity. 
It's about points of connection. But ethical principles are not in conflict. You know, we can have very different practices. Um, And that's where I kind of fell out with like the narrative therapists or the solution focus. You know, at that time, everybody's always been very competitive about what the new thing is, the new idea, we're the ones. And it's the end of thought, right? I started supervising other workers very early in my career because I was the clinical supervisor at the Center for Survivors of Torture. And I supervised um, a psychiatrist from Venezuela who was using Roshark tests. And he was doing beautiful, relational, respectful work with people. They could speak in their own language to him. And a lot was going on that I believe was justice doing. And people got better. People responded to their suffering. You know what I mean? It And it knocked the pedestals of these competitions between what kind of work is the real work. So that's when I got out of the, it doesn't matter to me what your theory is, actually. I think theory is important, but what, and theory and practice, which is usually the center of supervision says, uh, for me, the center should be ethics. How you get there is the different thing, but like supervision should be centered on ethics and our collective ethics, not your personal ethics, right? And then that idea is about collective care, you know? And so when I started to work with survivors of torture, I was doing shit tons of self-care, swimming, massage. (laughs) I was paying for super, I got paid so little doing that job because we had no money. We came from a social justice movement. I was seriously paying more for my supervision than I was getting paid. And then as soon as my supervisor figured that out, she started to see me for nothing. Isn't that Mm -hmm. cool? But at that time, I realized all the self-care in the world wasn't going to keep me okay in the face of political violence and torture, that I needed collective care. And I realized that I, it was a tactic from activism. I needed a solidarity team. That and, and you know what? There weren't any therapists on my team because everybody told me I was going to burn out or get vicarious trauma from these people, that I should publish something quick and have a plan to get out in two years. Instead, I started to think, how can I actually people the room? which is something that I do for survivors of torture, help bring people back in their life. Because as the family center taught me, it's about belonging, the sacred and liberation, right? So, you know, that's what I'm looking for, for every practitioner to have a solidarity team. That's these that, and they share your collective ethics. This is the doing of collective care. You know, like these are all so, these ideas all swim with each other, right? Mm-hmm. And it yeah. talks to kind of the sustainability of keeping the passion alive and and not having to yeah burn out and do your paper and run away you know yeah i mean if we look at vicarious trauma or burnout if you look at the scales for vicarious trauma and burnout i believe they measure privilege if you came from a stable environment you didn't have to change your housing there was enough money for everything to happen you know you're going to look better and healthier you know because what they measure is how do you sleep do you think about your clients you know these kind of things So they're basically a test of kind of basic mental health, which is, we know, a measure of um, privilege. (laughs) But if you come from struggle and you have shitty housing now, like most of the people responding to the opiate catastrophe are under, they don't make a living wage. They're housed four guys in a place with one bathroom. No one's taking a bubble bath for self-care, you know, this kind of stuff, right? And they're dealing with massive amounts of deaths every day and being harassed by the police, you know, uh, if they take a vicarious trauma scale or a burnout scale, they're going to be too unwell to go to work. I believe I would fail a vicarious trauma scale right now. I'm so brokenhearted from how much death I've been working with, right? Um, but that's not the measure for me, like that zone of fabulousness I st- talk about. The measure for me is 
is the client at the center? Because there's all kinds of people of massive privilege who have great self-care. They go to Pilates, their bodies are temples, you know, that, all that kind of shit. And they treat people like garbage. And if they see anybody they think they might get bed bugs from, they say they're aggressive and wash their hands of them and send them to someone else. So how are you fabulous? How do you pass? How can they be passing a vicarious trauma scale when all they're doing is this disconnection to uphold their privilege, right? So what I think about is that whole language from the trauma industry of vicarious trauma has taken over and it's got workers talking about how we're broken in the work. And the idea comes from, come on now, psychiatrist writings about vicarious trauma that clients infect us with hopelessness, which is one of the reasons I started to use the language of believed in hope as a response to this clients infect us with hopelessness. My clients have never infected me with hopelessness. Even the ones who die, who get deported or executed, I'm pissed at the state. I know who did this. They didn't do this, right? So sustainability for me was an important word to catch that that when I found that one, that mattered because it's something so different than not just burning out. I don't want to just pass a vicarious trauma scale. In fact, I'm not concerned, I'm not convinced that it's ethical. For me to pass a vicarious trauma scale right now, I'd pretty much have to leave the work entirely. And uh I I don't think that's required. Sustainability for me means something very different than not burning out. It means an ongoing aliveness, a connectedness with others, and a willingness to bring your sacred spirited self. I think it really does hark back to the family centers teaching about belonging, the sacred and liberation, right? And so if we think about art sustaining ourselves, I think justice doing is the way, staying ethical is the way you sustain yourself. I, I think a word I would add there is spiritual pain, Mm -hmm. Uh, that I don't see it as burnout. I see it as a spiritual pain or an ethical pain that what's happening for workers is we can't, you know, we're working, like I said, with this structural strategic abandonment of people and necropolitics, the policies that kill people. Um, That's what we're up against, right? And so it causes us this, what we're feeling is a spiritual pain that we can't be useful. Like says, I'm thinking about you being in front of those young people who have to be interrogated and treated as if they're, you know, with great skepticism and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that what you're feeling just in the structure of that work is this spiritual pain. I don't believe in this. Like, I'm going to be part of this because I'm trying to get inside and move some stuff. But this is painful work. Your clients aren't infecting you with hopelessness. And, uh, you know, going and having a bubble bath and hitting punching bags won't fix it because it doesn't change things in terms of a just society. So that sustainability is just a way better way for me to think about it than to think about not burning out that, you know? Mm. Yeah. Uh, and and that was quite a rant. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I didn't, I would, I didn't experience it as a rant, <laughs> but you know, it, it was definitely very thought provoking. And, and I, I got drawn to thinking about the team that I work in within an NHS setting, um, child and adolescent mental health service. And the types of conversations that are important to have together as as a team. And I was actually thinking, you know, we we have something like check-ins. And I was thinking of ethical check-ins, actually, was the word that came to mind when you were talking to, you know, how can that collective care be shown and, and expressed and kept alive between us as a team? And I, I don't know if you've got anything to, oh, yeah. to add or to share to it. Be really Yeah, helpful. what are we sharing with each other? Let's carve out space to have real, con- what I want to know is what's at the heart of your work and why are you here? 
I need to know that. That's how I start with teams. Mm. You know, um, what is at the heart of this for you? Why are you in here? I don't need to know that you've got a master's from this university and you had these other jobs. That just tells me nothing that I'm interested in. Why are you here? You know, and then I want to know what really qualifies you for this work, not university degrees and shit like that. I mean, yep, I got a PhD and that's not nothing. Um, and I've published and that means I've gotten through some gatekeepers that some people think these ideas are valid. There's, a, But, you know, what really qualifies me is we learn this work on the backs of clients. And so where I've worked and who's taught me what, that's the stuff. You know, I think about says I think about you being with those young uh, people who are called illegal. And, you know, I'm part of activism of no one is illegal. Right. Um, The fact that you meet them with dignity, respect, see them as human beings, you know, that really matters. I that's what I need to know about people. So I think we need to stop having these nice professional conversations. Icebreakers Mm. more than annoy me. I find they're patronizing, but they also they start any kind of conversation by saying, we're not going to get real here. We're going to play a cute game. Well, we're talking about life and death here. So I know I'm earnest and that must be annoying as hell for people, but I don't want to do a cute game and find out who else is a Pisces ever, ever, ever. I I want to carve out space for us to have a conversation with each other about what are you really doing here? And that question, what's the best use of you? Is your being here part of that best use of you? How? And how do I help you do that? Because how we do collective care is if I need to know, and then we need to have a conversation about our collective ethics. Mm -hmm. And if we commit to collective ethics, we can keep like collective care is offering each other critiques, right? And, and moving in when someone's moving away from ethics, letting them know about that, not bringing, you know, muffins to work every Tuesday. I mean, I'm not against muffins, but I kind of am. I really mean it. Like sometimes teams treat each other like they'll treat somebody who's not up to it as like a mascot. And they're the person who brings the muffin and no one ever says it. Like, you know, everybody's got to serve clients, you know? So, you know, there's staff-centered teams and there's client-centered teams. I want to be on a client-centered team. There's usually no muffins, you know? Mm-hmm. There can be muffins, but they're a, there's an offset. They're not what we're doing here. So I don't want to prioritize harmonious relationships between staff over just relationships with clients, right? Mm-hmm. So I think these like check-ins, like, what are we checking in about? Like, what I want to know is what's at the heart of your work. And it's a big ask and it shifts everything in the room dialogically. Well, that I'm up for that. I'm up for that. That's what I want us to do. You know, that's a great example of walking the walk. That was another term that we pulled <laughs> yeah. from the work. Um, of, and I, I guess kind of on the back of Julie's question really about how we bring this stuff into our day-to-day work in big organizations as well statutory work or even in our community projects and some maybe private work um and I wonder if you've got any um I hate asking this like tips for but in a way that's kind of what I I I want to ask of like first steps for people to begin to walk in towards more a social activism space to be able to maybe find their voice in doing it or their confidence or um, yeah, maybe their first way way to begin to walk in that direction. Well, the first one thing is I think committing to a parallel practice, like what parallel ethics is what, what I think about. I want my team that I'm on, not my team, but team I'm on. I want us to be up to doing the things we ask clients to do. Imagine if that was the bar. (laughs) We ask clients 
all the time um, to be accountable, you know, to to tell us about what's at the heart of their struggles and stuff like that. And then we smooth it over with staff. You know, I'm not talking about doing group therapy in supervision, but like a real ethical investigation. Um, and I was thinking about something else as you were talking. Can you just ask your question again? Because it was yeah, excellent. Sure. It, it was about curious. the first steps towards bridging social activism and therapy and working in this way. Yeah. Finding your first steps. Yeah. So, you know, uh, early on, like I said, when I was being supervised by people who thought how being a feminist, a socialist and an activist were the problems for me, <laughs> uh, that kind of went on. And I had that I've had those conversations with people. I got some really great advice that I was able to resist. You know, and I, Alan Wade taught me that, too. You know, have you been given great advice you've had to resist? I got all kinds of career advice because I had the makings of a successful person. You know, I could have like run a very successful individual practice and got a lot of associates and made a lot of money and stuff, you know, or, or, or whatever I was going to do. Or if I, in the health, I could have moved up in the health authority or, you know, I was somebody who could get promoted, right. I'm, I'm white. I can hide how middle class or working class I am. I can pretend I'm, I can cover my tattoos. I don't have to swear. You know, I could, I could probably fit in and do okay. Um, and so like all of the advice I got that was trying to help me do that, I resisted it. Um, because my ethics are to be a direct action activist and to be in line with social justice principles of anti-capitalism and anti-imperialism and to try to resist white supremacy, which is what all of that is. Um, so a lot of the advice I got was, your work is great. Students love you. Um, your workshops are amazing. Just, just, you know, quiet a little bit on the social justice stuff. You're just so incensed and you're so earnest, you know, uh, just, you know, tap that down. Um, and, um, and the reality is that is how I actually built my career, isn't it? Like when people think of me, they think about social justice. Like that's the thing that I do that was different. That's what I brought. And I promise you, not everybody, but many practitioners, it doesn't matter what percentage, there are practitioners who are absolutely hungry to find out that there's a place for social justice. I get emails probably every week or every other week now from someone saying, you know, I'm in Italy. I just read your article. It's the first time I ever heard anybody say justice doing is actually the heart of this and that you don't believe that people are broken inside their brains. You actually think they've been oppressed. This is amazing. I believe this too. Like, I think that what I know, you know, my, I would say that my work is very common sense of people who have a justice orientation to the work. So that's kind of my response to that. I think that it, you know, yeah, it's, it's social justice has uh, being overt about that is the thing that has helped me stay alive in the work too. I mean, given the work I've done, it wouldn't be surprising if I was burned out. I'm, I'm 61. I'm as on fire as I've been, you know, and I think it's because I get energized from this ethical engagement. I'm not saying everything I do is ethical by any means, uh, but that that's my pursuit. That's what I'm after. That's definitely been my sustainability. And I believe that's the map for sustainability. Collective accountability, holding each other ethical, helping each other stay with an orientation for justice doing and do it. That's collective care, not going to a spa together and getting your nails done. Like, yeah. There's a lot think, I've been thinking as you were asking that question. Oh, what have you been thinking? Is there oh, anything else you want to speak to? Oh, yeah, my brain's just busy. I'm just like, I'm. yeah, I'm just curious about what you're thinking. <laughs> yeah, I think, oh. I, I mean, 
I've just been struck all the way through this conversation by just you can hear the energy. You know, we we were the word the phrase we just used was walking the walk. I mean, you, you, oh, yeah, you can hear it in 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 the in your talk and in, in how it sustains you and how it moves you forward. Um, and it, I suppose I'm I'm thinking where 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 are you at? now you know we we named these words that have been part of your journey so far like are there new words that are on the tip of your tongue well yeah I think I mean the biggest thing of course is decolonization Mm. and the education I've had from indigenous people so you know I do have an intersectional analysis for justice doing but that sits on the territory I'm in as part of settler culture. Mm. Um, and so those, you know, these teachings, I'm thinking of many indigenous teachers, Eve Tuck, who talks about how decolonization is not a metaphor. It's actually about land back and indigenous governance. And what I think about as um as a white settler who's trying to work in solidarity with indigenous people is also um staying implicated. Like I work very hard to stay implicated in white supremacy, in colonization. Um, and in the oppression of Indigenous people, all of those things that really advantage me. Uh, so that's been like an area of real great study for me. And I I also think that I, my work hasn't, um, as much as obviously when I talk about it, I can, you can see the threads of abolitionism, um, abolitioning, a- abolition of the death penalty, but also of prisons. And when I, I am an abolitionist, and when I say that, I mean, like, Angela Davis, you know, black activist from the United States, abolitionist, who um, talks about abolition being um, an end of prisons, policing, and surveillance. Like, I believe all of that. When we talk about defund the police and people are saying, well, you don't really mean that. I, I mean, absolutely that. Every sentence, we do not need the police to keep us safe. We keep us safe. How do we do that? So I think you know, where my, um, and just tonight, I'm I'm part of a small group of activist, I guess, kind of theorists and workers. Uh, we have an abolitionist group that, and we're meeting tonight. And, uh, and so I've been listening to some new thinkers, you know, on this and um, thinking about the threads of abolition that have been part of uh, my work and how, if I were to write it now, I would, I would, I would overt, I would name that more overtly. Um, and it's not that I was hiding it. It's just that we didn't have abolitionist language when I started out. But I definitely started by these kids shouldn't be in jail. They're not criminalized and they're not mentally ill. They were abandoned by us structurally in these horrific situations where they ended up killing a stepfather. And now they're in jail the rest of their lives. Now there's all kinds of resources like that's you know what I mean? So I think, yeah, where I'm learning is in the abolitionist community in the de- in um, indigenous voices for decolonization and indigenous governance, um, and I think um, like I don't know enough about disability justice, but they've been I've been reading and thinking about this and informed by people. But I'm thinking about all of these social models for repair. Um, I think repair is also something I talk about a lot, like how how to leaning leaning in, leaning in to repair with other people as opposed to calling out. That's been a big piece of what I've done. Um, and that's really relies a lot on the teachings and the practices um, from social justice movements who are working towards um, transformative justice. You know, not, you know, restorative justice is trying to restore you to some kind of justice. There's been no justice. I'm on land that's colonized for 500 years. So transformative justice, 
movements socially, collectively, outside of policing, to hold each other to collective account and to try to transform our societies, we make us safe. You know, communities of struggle have always made themselves safe as acts of resistance. So I think these things have been threaded through my work, but possibly not. Certainly I haven't written enough about them. And I I made a commitment a couple of years ago to stop writing mm-hmm. because one thing is not funny. <laughs> Most people want to write more or something. I've written, I think all my stuff's out there. And uh, I think my ideas are out there. And what I'm interested now is what other diverse voices who aren't welcome to the table so much. And it's not like I've already told you the story. I wasn't welcome because I was bringing activism. But, you know, I am a white person and I am in an able body and I'm straight. So I'm like, what are the other voices? So what I've been doing the last decade is trying to co-author things to get more voices in and then Mm. get me out of the way kind of thing. But that's what I'm curious about. Uh, Certainly when I'm teaching or supervising or being alongside people now, these are the things that are really on my mind, maybe in the context of the work I'm doing with drug users and people who are criminalized and workers who've been criminalized and people with lived experience. So I'm thinking a lot more about anti-Black racism in particular um, and colonization and things that are outside of carceral or police responses to things. How do we do accountability collectively in ways that transform society? So that that's those are all things that aren't here that that aren't going to be here because I'm not going to write more. But I'm but they're but they're existing and there's really imp- important voices coming writing about all of these things and I'm I'm informed by them and transformed by them and hoping to contribute something to them or you know make space make space yeah Vicky thank you so so much um, it's been such a pleasure to have this opportunity to really engage in these conversations with you Julie I don't know if you've got a final concluding question. It's not a question. I, I just wanted to, to to say thank you. And the word for me is transformative. Mm-hmm. I think I'm so glad that you brought that in 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 the last few, few minutes or few minutes that we've been talking, because that's been my experience of this conversation. Um, on For me, it's something I take away, but it's also I see in you and I hear in you, and I'm sure you will be transforming <laughs> as uh, you know as we as time passes and as we go forward and I look forward to see to see that and and my own journey of what what that will take what I will take and move oh, on with you. so thank you and bring to others and share with others so thank you yeah I just want to thank you both for like it's very humbling to have people be so committed to look inside your work and have a rigorous like dialogue with yourselves, I could tell how much prep work you did in this and then bringing it to me. Like, I feel really honored and witnessed. Uh, and I haven't had this experience. I really haven't. So I, I really appreciate this. I've been interviewed, but more, you know, I talking about like the, the work and where the ideas are from and in the practice. So I like, this has been really useful for me and I'll have a, I have a very busy brain at the end of it and I'll be reflecting on a lot of it. Um, the only thing I didn't mention that I should include is just that my family, uh, my clan um, has made has been had a massive influence on me. My father, Bill Reynolds, taught me about dignity, and my mother, Joan Manuel Reynolds, taught me about love, holding and strength, and being strong. That love can be strong and tough, and holding people together when it gets tough. So I, I, and my clan, um, yeah, my grandmother Maggie O'Rourke still matters to me. This idea that we know our culture. We know our spirituality outside of the church and we are committed. Like I'm really tight with my cousin sisters and my cousin brothers 
you know, we grew up as a clan and that, that all those things, the family center talks about, about belonging, the sacred and liberation. That is, I learned that that resonated for me because of my clan, my, my Reynolds extended family. 